Coming up today, how Afghans are racing to erase their online lives and the wild logistics of the Istanbul Canal. You're listening to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, Amit Katwala, and joining me today are Natasha Bernal. Hello. And Matt Burgess. Hello. This was the week when Tesla CEO Elon Musk said the company was working on humanoid robots. The Tesla bot will be five foot eight with a screen for a face and Musk claims that a prototype will be ready sometime next year. This was also the week when Facebook unveiled its vision for the future of the office. Horizon Workrooms is a Sims-style virtual world accessed through Oculus virtual reality headsets, allowing workers to sit with colleagues, chat and collaborate using virtual whiteboards. And finally, it was also the week when subscription site OnlyFans announced that it would block sexually explicit photos and videos from October the 1st. The company said the change came after pressure from its banking partners, but will be widely seen as a betrayal to the sex workers that have contributed to the site's success. The uh, Horizon Workroom Sim-style virtual world sounds absolutely horrific to me. I don't know what you guys think. It's ugly as hell. Um... Who wants it? Who asked for this? Can you imagine that? People must have said on Facebook, let's think of a place where we'd like to work. And they're like, you know what we should do? Create a virtual office where the only thing we change is that the chairs don't reach the ground. So they look (laughs) like they hover. That will be innovation. You could just see it being one of the worst ideas ever. I mean, I might be wrong. Um, I don't know. Maybe people people will love it. Um, Sitting with a headband on their face and talking to their colleagues i wonder though like do you get to change its outfits or how does that work that's one of the things that i haven't read anywhere so like if for example you want to make it look different like is that a thing is that going to be a thing do you dress your avatar every morning um do you just dress the same does it mean that you can sit in your pajamas at home forever there might be some upsides I really hope it's not like downloadable content where you'll have to um, on a if you want to wear something different on a Tuesday, go and buy uh, for four quid uh, an extra (laughs) pair of trousers or something like that. That will just be really, uh, really make it just hideous. You'll earn points, you'll earn work points for doing good work in your job. You'll earn like Facebook clothing points and then you'll be able to use those Facebook clothing points to upgrade your avatar. Wait a second. So that means if you don't get any points, what your avatar's naked or something, just to like earn your way to get a pair of trousers no, or something. I, I think know. I think setting your avatar to naked probably loses you points. I would imagine. <laughs> uh, should yeah, we crazy. should we move on to fun facts? Only one fact this week because I just realised that I forgot to come up with one. So Natasha, it's all on you. Oh my gosh, the pressure is real. So um, I have heard that this fact has been, in fact, verified um, officially. But I haven't verified it, so do not hold me to it. Here's a fact. If you blended all 7.88 billion people on Earth into a fine goo, you would end up with a sphere of human goo just under one kilometre wide. So imagine a big, big goo ball. That's what you'd get, which is, you know, unsurprising. But the kilometre bit, you know, it's... 
That's probably still preferable goes, to <laughs> probably still preferable to Horizons works rooms from Facebook though. Would you rather <laughs> would you rather be stuck in a sim style virtual world or blended into a kilometer wide ball of human goo? Would be my question. Are those the um, two options? Yeah. <laughs> what would you rather be stuck? Yeah, goo. I choose goo. There's no elegant way to do this segue, so I'm just going to have to try and do it. Um, apologies to you listeners. Um, our first story this week is about Afghanistan and the situation over there, which has been really, really harrowing to watch. The last week has seen the world trying to respond to the situation in Afghanistan. Over the last week, we've seen the Taliban take control of the country and say that it's forming a new government, while countries around the world have scrambled to evacuate people. The situation is unfolding rapidly, but the forceful takeover has left a lot of uncertainty in Afghanistan. The Taliban claims that it's changed in the 20 years since it was ousted after 9-11, but people are very, very sceptical of this and many are fearful of what comes next. Matt, at the start of this week, our reporter Chris Stoker-Walker took a look at how people in Afghanistan are starting to erase their digital lives in response to the Taliban's takeover. Yeah, he did. So Chris was speaking with uh, Murdit Bala, who is a translator in his 30s, who has been working with Western companies uh, and the US Army in Afghanistan for several years now. Um, So he was, uh, when Chris was speaking to him, he said he was scared for his life and worried about what his connections with the West might mean for his family. Um, And sort of earlier in July, as the sort of Taliban sort of takeover progressed, he uh, fled to Kabul. Um, And in the process of doing this, he burned all uh, the physical evidence of his past, so all his documents and things like that, um, so it couldn't be used against him. Uh, but he's also wiped m- almost all of the information from his phone for uh, fears that it could be used against him as well. So when he was speaking to us, he said that uh, he's done that because of the Taliban, and if they were searching me and checking my phone, they would find my stuff. And he went on to say that they'd have the option of slaughtering me. They'd know that I was working for the Americans. And he was deleting all of his foreign contacts from uh, his WhatsApp accounts. He was wiping all of his phone data, everything that was existing on there and anything that could be used to really uh, uh, highlight his connections to uh, the West and the Americans that he had been working with in recent years. Uh, And in the process, he also sent digital digital copies of important documents to a handful of close contacts so that um, they would be able to... uh, send them back to him or or prove his identity if, if it was ever needed in any case. And he's not alone in this. Um, the worry really from a lot of people is that uh, the information that they posted online in, in the last couple of decades could be used against them. And if not now, then in the future when the Taliban may have consolidated some of its power. So the story that we're reporting around really was looking at how people have been responding digitally to this change uh, amongst all of the other things that have been happening in the country as well. A lot of these issues are issues that you report on quite a lot in your own reporting, Matt, in terms of like security and privacy and all these kind of things that seem quite ephemeral and sort of abstract to us in in the UK. But actually, this is a real illustration of the danger that information can pose when there's a sudden political shift or when a a regime comes in that's going to clamp down on certain types of behaviour. And I guess it's one of the first times that we've seen such a a drastic change from a relatively open society to a relatively closed one in this digital era of smartphones and social media. How real is this threat, do you think? Yeah, so I guess 
quite simply, I think the threat is probably very real here. So over the last uh, sort of 20 years, uh, when since the Taliban last ruled in Afghanistan, there's obviously been a huge amount of change in our lives and our digital lives in particular. Um, pretty much all of us now live large parts of our lives online uh, in some ways or, or another. Um, and essentially each sort of uh, digital breadcrumb that we've left or people in Afghanistan have left over the last 20 years could be used as a reason to be uh, for them to be punished or, or potentially even killed. Um, so just one very quick example, back when they were in charge uh, yeah, two decades ago, uh, the Taliban banned pop music. Um, and now the reports from Afghanistan have always already said that private TV networks have removed pop music and Western style game shows and things from their broadcast. So essentially there is this sort of like clampdown of things already happening. And um, the sort of threat that we've seen and the potential sort of like wave that people's data could be being used against them uh, has sort of been echoed by a lot of sort of international partners and companies and stuff as well. So the United States humanitarian arm also uh, allegedly sent an email asking its partners to go through their social media accounts and websites to remove photos and information that could uh, make individuals or groups within Afghanistan vulnerable. Um, And really, so there is this potential threat there. And there are multiple different ways really that the Taliban could find out information about people from their online lives and their lives over the last 20 years. Uh, Obviously there's the stuff that is stored on people's devices, your contacts, your photos, uh, things like that. And there's also the stuff that people have uploaded to cloud services. So essentially if they got got, uh, your devices, then they could go through these and and find out some of uh, the information about the life that people have been living um but there are also things outside of people's individual control too so there are the photos and videos that people have been caught up in either wittingly or unwittingly that they don't have much control over so pose photographs showing educational projects that have been developed in recent years that have been posted onto ngos websites or uh, their social media feeds or things like that and sort of candid shots of life outside of taliban rule are all basically evidence that could be used against people Um, and experts that we spoke to say that people need to obviously think about think hard about what they want to do with their digital history Um, and like the example I already talked about people are obviously sort of going through this process of erasing some of their data but at the same time it should be remembered that this is something that will um, not be a position that is everybody is able to do not everybody will have the luxury of being able to delete all their data and all of their sort of like past sort of interactions if they if they are fearful so it's one of these things where the situation probably is quite fraught there's a lot of there's been a lot of images and videos and things like that being shared from afghanistan in the last few days of people attempting to flee the country and and things like that i guess there is a risk that if you are seen on screen in one of those videos but you don't actually manage to escape that that could then be used against you in future which is really really scary and i guess maybe i know maybe we should be thinking a bit more carefully about the images that we choose to share and amplify because we don't know who the people in them are and we don't know if that that by sharing them we could be putting them under threat but it's not just social media and online lives that are putting people at risk either there have been reports that the taliban has been able to access the biometric systems that were being used by the u.s military to identify people which is really scary yeah, so over the time the US military has been in Afghanistan, they also created a vast database of biometric data. Um, this was in part to track uh, potential terrorists in the country uh, and identify people. Uh, and while it was a military product, 
project and product really it was also reportedly contained details of afghanistan uh, afghan citizens civilians who worked for u.s embassies and sort of were involved in the broader coalition government that was in place um one reporter suggested that the databases that were created uh, have more than 25 million different entries uh, and there's been a couple of reports both from the intercept and from reuters uh, that suggest that the taliban could potentially uh, use it uh, to target allies who have been left behind and that they have potentially also got access to some of these systems now um, and one of those systems which is called the handheld interagency identity detection equipment hide for short collects information from iris scans to fingerprints along with people's biographic information so really lots of personal data about their lives and their identity um, and there's been some sort of conflicting information on whether the Taliban can actually access and take action with some of this uh, technology and systems that they now allegedly have got access to um, with one uh, US uh, army special operations official telling the intercept that the Taliban doesn't have the gear to use this data uh, although other reports have said that uh for instance, help could come from Pakistan's intelligence agency to access the data and systems. And while a lot of that may be sort of unclear at the moment, um, and the realities are sort of uh, changing up in real time, really, um, the Taliban has previously shown that it's capable and willing to harness the vast uh, databases that we create and have been created to try and, uh, yeah, to try and find out more information about people or in some cases to uh, to discriminate against them as well. Um, so there was reports from 2016 that said that Taliban insurgents had killed 12 passengers on a bus that they stopped after requiring everybody on board to scan their fingerprints on a biometric machine uh, that they had got access to. Um, and Afghan news website Tolo News reported on uh, a military commander at the time saying that most of the passengers were not familiar with the machine, but they knew it was a biometric device uh, that could uh, that could identify them. So there are there is some precedent for these types of systems being used as well. I guess it's another example of tech kind of falling into the wrong hands or being used in ways that it wasn't intended to be used. And one thing that's marked out this particular. Uh, series of events is the way that the Taliban is now using big tech technology to its advantage, whether that's by spreading news of its, you know, coup via WhatsApp or posting statements and videos on Twitter and other social media platforms. I wanted to talk about the role of big tech in Afghanistan and what tech platforms, often US-based tech platforms, should do about the Taliban using their platforms to, to spread information or misinformation. Yeah, the, the picture here is quite messy at the moment. And essentially, sort of each of the big tech platforms has had different positions that are they're, they're slowly evolving and may have changed by the time that uh, the podcast is published. But they've all had to confront what they do about online accounts that the Taliban has begun to use and, and spread their messages uh, to help establish their legitimacy. And the, the choice of big tech companies largely boils down to whether they recognize the Taliban as, a, as the official government of, of Afghanistan or or whether they see it as a, a terrorist group and link the group's history of violence and repression uh, against people um, to their policies. Um, so at, 
on the sort of like official United States list of terror groups. The, te- the Taliban uh, in Afghanistan isn't officially recognized as one of them. So this has led to uh, some of the different the big tech companies having different policies. So Facebook for quite a few years has actually banned Taliban re- related accounts as part of a, a policy that it has on dangerous organizations. Uh, and the company said this week that it will continue to remove Taliban accounts and posts that support the group across both Facebook, Instagram and WhatsApp. Um, and YouTube has also sort of, uh, YouTube has cited some US uh, sanctions uh, against uh, the Afghan Taliban and said that it will remove accounts that are operated by the group, uh, although it doesn't have, although Twitter uh, is slightly different and doesn't have a blanket ban, uh, it's also said that it would uh, remove any posts that go against its um its policies on hate speech and incitement to violence. So there's a few different positions here. Um, and when uh, a lot of the big tech companies were asked about their positions to begin with, they weren't particularly clear in terms of like where they stood on this. Um, and I think that one of the, there's a couple of different things that make it challenging is that the companies are obviously guided by the laws that they're set uh, set in the US um, and other countries where they op- operate. And they also take sort of like lots of their cues from their actions on the sort of wider international community and reactions on this but ultimately and at the end of the day they are private companies that must make their own choices on their policies and what actions they take and really it's it's quite messy because uh, the Taliban is obviously uh, the second uh, put itself in a position as the official government of Afghanistan um, and that Facebook's ban on um, accounts here has also impacted people that are on the ground. So there was a uh, WhatsApp phone line uh, that people could message uh, to help help with services and find out what was happening but that was run by the Taliban so even though it's a public service it is being shut down by WhatsApp and Facebook Um, and increasingly we're starting to see the company's policies evolve as well so Facebook has also said that it's uh, removed the ability for uh, people to view and search uh, friends for those that are listed uh, their location as being in Afghanistan to help protect people's identity and help them from being targeted which links back to what we're talking to at the beginning Uh, and Facebook Facebook has also launched like uh, a one-click tool that can uh, lock down people's profiles uh, if they're based in Afghanistan. And we've actually seen LinkedIn doing the same sort of thing as well. Um, so they, it started to um, make it um, possible to sort of hide connections if you are based in Afghanistan. So this sort of policy is evolving, but um, I think it's also true that there have been uh, sort of some inconsistencies in how the companies have moderated and taken down posts that are linked to the Taliban. So it's one of those things that is very much developing but obviously has a big role to play in sort of what what happens next as well yeah as you say matt it's a really fast fast moving story and a really important one if you want to find out more there'll be a link to chris Walker's story on this in the show notes our second story this week is about the istanbul canal a plan to build a 45 kilometer shipping canal to the west of the city of istanbul from the black sea to the marmara sea now if you look at a map, as I did earlier, you'll notice that Istanbul already has a, a straight, natural strait running through it to the east, the Bosphorus um, Straits. So my question to you, Natasha, is what's the point of this massive canal that they're trying to dig? Well, I mean, that's a really, really good question. So, yeah, you, you turn a chunk of the city um, into an island. Um, but the idea is that this canal, which is the crazy plan of the Turkish government, uh, could be a, a fast alternative to the Bosphorus Strait, where 
ships have to wait around 14 hours to go in. It's a very narrow strait. And it could also be a really important source of income for the Turkish government. So unlike the Suez or Panama canals, the Turkish government is restricted by international law from charging tolls on ships using the Bosphorus Strait. A new canal, they hope, would siphon off about a big chunk. They're hoping about half of the roughly 40,000 cargo ships that use the strait every year. Um, and round about 2,000 of the daily crossings of civilian ships. And it could also relieve congestion on the Bosphorus Strait, which has been the site of several maritime disasters. So the idea is build another strait, charge people some money, everybody's happy. So it's not, So international law presumably says that you can't charge people for passage to a natural thing, right? I guess that's what it says, so that's why they can't charge for the bus. So essentially what they're doing is building a toll road that goes to the same yeah. place. as like, It's like the M6 toll road, but a, a massive canal in Turkey. Um, what would need to happen for it to actually be built? We know that the past examples have not been easy. That's right. So it, first of all, it's going to cost $15 billion. So got to find the money that's that's for starters but we do know what this kind of project will involve because we've seen other examples of this historically so the Suez Canal and the Panama Canal both cost a lot of money and um, both took a lot of effort and this principle is still the same you dig a really big trench right so you need to dig about 17 meters um, for the depth of uh, to reach the container ships to allow them to pass the width has to be around 275 meters and it needs to be 45 kilometers long uh, long to um go between the Marmara and the Black Sea. So the, the, the key here is to basically dig and dig and dig um, and make it wide enough for shipping containers, um, sh- sorry, shipping container ships, which are huge, to pass each other so you don't have a, another Suez Canal um, scenario, <laughs> if you know what I mean. There won't be any sort of blockage if they do things right. Now, if you look historically, um, obviously th- these kinds of things take a long time and they have a human toll. So, for example, in in the situation of um, some of the canals that were built earlier on in history, the Panama Canal, for example, 25,000 workers died trying to construct that, and they had to widen it afterwards because the ships wouldn't fit. In the Suez Canal, uh, people became bankrupt because (laughs) they ran out of money while they were digging. So these these kinds of um, mega projects are really, really difficult to manage, and it's not as easy. I mean, it, it does sound easy to dig a big trench but it is not as easy as all of that and Andrew Kirsty our reporter on the story has gone into great amount of detail in his piece so what are some I mean it does you when you say it like it's just a big trench it does seem kind of easy obviously there's more to it than that but what are some of the logistical problems with with doing this if they want to pursue this plan yeah the main issue is what's on top of the earth that they want to displace so we're looking at around about 201,000 trees that they'd have to cut down um, there's a bunch of houses and land that would need to be dug up, um, and this this has been hugely, you know, uh, criticised by um, by people who are opposing the government's plans, saying that you know it will be an environmental disaster, it will cost a absolute fortune, and it's it's not worth it. So what what they're saying is is some some very simple things, and I'll kind of go through them, but. Uh, there's at the moment uh, environmental issues in Turkey include you know fires, uh, drought, uh, big problems that they're having already, and this canal could potentially um, accidentally dig into the city's uh, main source of water um, and accidentally deviate it into the canal, mixing it with salt water and making it undrinkable. Um, that that is a big problem that people are going. Well, you know, what are you what are you going to do 
that right about that what are you gonna what are you gonna do to fix that and make sure that that doesn't happen um they don't really have an answer for that right now um aside from potentially putting in some membranes but the government hasn't committed committed to this so they can have kind of flexible membranes that you put on the entryways that could be problematic between one body of water and the other to make sure that they don't mix um but there's no guarantee that that would happen uh when you take away hundreds of thousands of trees the potential for drought becomes worse um and the potential for environmental impact becomes worse as well so uh yeah not not great on the face of it plus you're displacing a load of people Two hundred and one thousand trees an oddly specific number that you cited there natasha for, for the number of trees it sounds it kind of sounds like they got bored halfway through and made up the number of trees and just added an extra thousand onto it yeah. to make sure they didn't look yeah. like they, they'd lied um so assuming they can find a way to deal with the environmental issues and, and this problem you talked about of mixing salt water with istanbul's drinking water which i can see was probably going to be a bit of an issue other than that it should be all right right the, you know this, this could open up a new source of revenue and speed up global shipping at a time when you know there's a massive shipping container shortage and we're struggling to get toys over for christmas and things like that <laughs> no you're wrong. <laughs> That's not the only problem. So it, let's let's go back to the drinking water problem. So you've got about 16 million people who are already relying on water sources that are hundreds of kilometres away, right? Let's pretend that that isn't an issue. Let's just go back to you put... If you remember, like we've all been to the seaside and you like dig a trench, I don't know, you build a sandcastle, you dig a moat around it, you fill it with water. But what happens when the sea tide comes in? Well your castle gets destroyed. The same kind of effect would happen on a very, very large scale. So when the seas meet around the city, there is a 30 centimetre water height difference between the Marmara and the Black Seas, right? And that'll be very problematic because the water will consistently be flowing one way, right? Which you think, you know, fine, one way, that's 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 all right, okay. Uh, but there's a difference in the salinity of the waters in these different seas, which means that they'll be mixing together in the strait and there'll be some very interesting things resulting from that. So <laughs> mainly there'll be a smell, a real bad smell. So imagine the worst smell in the world that you can think of. And some people might think, you know, I don't know, a nappy or sewage smell. No, one of the worst smells in the world is the smell of rotting eggs. And that will be the destiny of Istanbul if the <laughs> if the seas mix together in this canal, which will be very close to the city centre, becomes deoxygenated and will create sulphurous gases when they mix together, which means that there will be a pong like no other. And it will, in my imagination, surround the city like a cloud <laughs> that they will not be able to get rid of. But that's not all. If you're not suffering from the pong, you will suffer from the sea snot. So there's there's another, there's another big problem which is it sounds made up but it's absolutely disgusting but that there is a dangerous amount of marine mucilage or sea snot that covers an unprecedented amount of the Marmara Sea and it's something that Turkey has tried to sort out by hoovering it up from the surface of the water uh, it does look like you know goo it's it's goo it clogs up um sh uh, sh uh, ships it it's it kills what, what animals is it? in the what sea is it? is it like actual it's sea mucus? yeah like what where's it come from yeah so if you if you imagine mucus like sort of stretchy gooey yeah. 
Yeah, it's, it's but, that. But what is it? <laughs> like, <laughs> is it just like so, part of the suit? So I will, I will tell you, I will tell you. So it's, it's a kind of foamy white um, kind of growth that appears when um, when things start going wrong with the sort of pH of, of the water. Oh, so it's like a bit like so an algal the, the, bloom, but more mucusy, sort of. It's kind of it's a combination of pollution, climate change, phytoplankton that thrive in, in warm waters, um, and and sort of the the agricultural runoff. So that's kind of mixed together and created. If you can imagine, like a vast brown sheet of slime. And, and it's kind of brown and grey and, and slightly white. And it sort of floats around. Um, that's that's basically what what it looks like. But the, the situation has got to the point where it's now very, very deep. So you don't just have a little bit of slime on the top that you can sort of skim off, like, you know, cleaning a swimming pool or something like that. No, you've got slime that reaches a depth of up to 100 metres. So this is slime that's slowly going to make its way through the canal obviously huge problem for ships because it clogs up um their motors and is is generally gross um if you if you touch it i've seen I've, i saw a video this morning in preparation for this someone touching the mucus and it, it it's stre- it's like oh it's it's disgusting like it just stretches in the hand it's grim so it's not like um it's not like scum like sea scum no it's it's gross snot literal snot and that's what awaits people. So those those are like my two my two top no nos for the canal. In case you're wondering, where about where are, where are we in the process? Like, have they started digging yet, or is it this still something that's like hypothetical? And and, and why are they doing it if if all these problems that you outlined are are gonna gonna cause issues? Yeah, so they they built the first um, bridge that's supposed to go over the canal. Obviously, this is going to take a long time. Apparently, it takes up to seven years uh, for for things to be built, even even though it's only only you know I say only forty five kilometers long. Uh, it will take a long time for for things to to kind of actually be built. But the the first the first stretch has been reached. They've done they've done the environmental impact. Um, the government has obviously committed to planting more trees in other locations so that there are sort of ways that they're trying to mitigate um the situation and avoid you know continued earthquakes forest fires droughts you know stealing all the drinkable water all that kind of stuff accidentally making mistakes that that could end up with a a polluted disgusting rotten egg smelling city which would be a massive shame but it it has it has sort of been approved so it will go ahead um there is there is a big time scale um issue and there there could be some delays uh so it could get stalled in the financing process but to your question as to why it has decided to do this well there's there's economic benefit obviously um to, to it if it goes right but the arguments the government has made, and obviously they did not uh, comment for this article, the arguments the government has made is very much, you know, we have to, you know, start trying to make some economic benefit from, you know, having a waterway. And that's the reason why we're doing things. Um, they also plan to make some money from putting some smart cities on the land that is close to the canal, uh, which would potentially generate a lot more money. Um, but environmental experts obviously worry that the site of these cities would also be an environmental issue when it comes to the footprint of this canal so yeah um i think the lure of uh, the potential for one billion dollars of fees from ships is the main motivator here i guess the question that 
listeners might be asking and I'm wondering is, is why we're kind of focusing so much on this uh, canal in Istanbul as, as a story. And I guess it's like a really interesting example of a, a wider trend in geopolitics generally of countries trying to like shape the environment to like suit their economic or political needs. And it's something we're going to see a lot more of as like the Arctic ice melts, right? You know, there's going to be like a big scramble for resources in that area. I, I guess... My question to you is like, is this something you think we're going to see more of in future? Like, are com- countries and going to start taking, you know, their nature into their own hands and trying to mould it into their to what they want and to hell with the environmental impacts? Potentially, I mean, the interesting thing here is that there are no guarantees that any of this will go well. And, and as I said before, look, you know, the other canals were fraught with problems as well. They're now operational. There's a lot of demand for it. There's no guarantee that the demand that the um, Turkish government hopes will be there for the Istanbul Canal will actually exist by the time they build it. Um, You know, the shipping container um, ships are actually using the Bosra Strait less than they have in previous years. So that that could vanish. But you're absolutely right. There is a a lot of um, mentality going on with with government, especially with big logistics operations saying we we can do this so why shouldn't we you know if if we have a problem where we're seeing there's a clogging in in the strait or the canal that we have we know that there is huge demand look what look what happened with the ever given right we saw the entire of the world shudder to a halt because one container ship with a bit of headwind got stuck and a tiny little digger was trying to get it out. Like that, it, it's mad that in 2021 we had this conversation of, of what, what, how did this happen and, and why did this happen? It was, it was discussed on the podcast at length. And, and so, yes, there will be more projects like this. The question is for this one, if you've got no public support, which it seems to be the case, the Turkish uh, people don't necessarily want this. The government's spending $15 billion to create a canal next to another canal that already exists. You do wonder, like, what, what's the threshold that, that, that these kinds of projects need to pass for them to be a good idea or not, seeing as there's so much against it? And I think with, with this piece, Andrew's very much... Um, kind of set out the premise of everyone saying it's a bad idea for many, many different reasons. Will it go ahead? Probably. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a mad situation. Yeah, there's a lot of parallels with projects that have been floated in the UK. Like, I mean, HST springs to mind yeah. as something that's been, that is sort of going ahead, though they've cancelled half of it despite you know years of opposition and then every so often like boris johnson will float some idea like an airport in the thames estuary or building a a tunnel to ireland or whatever and these things often just get quashed and you know quietly forgotten put to one side or they go through this like you know very lengthy like process of appeals and you know fights either way i guess um this is an interesting example of something which does seem to be going ahead despite all the problems and despite the opposition. And actually, by the time it's finished, it may not even be needed anymore. That's the other thing, right? The difference with the Suez and the Panama Canal. Kind of like HS2. That, yeah. Well, yeah, we don't, I don't want to get into a debate about HS2, <laughs> HS2 right now, to be honest. <laughs> but it, but um, it's true. Like yeah. the, the, There was different impacts, right? Impact studies that happened for HS2. And, and, you know, the latest ones were saying that actually the economic benefit that was hoped for um, may no longer come to fruition and this is the interesting thing about about these kinds of projects it took a long long time to build the canna- uh, the panama canal it took a long long time to build the suez canal this canal might be up and running in seven years and it might be completely pointless by that point so it, it's, it's so interesting the way that the parameters have shifted for big logistics um 
kind of projects like this. And these poor engineers, they're having to figure out not just how to do it in, in a sort of economically savvy kind of way, in an environmental, you know, respectful kind of way, but also they've run out of time even before they've started. It's yeah. really interesting. Well, I think it's really yeah. interesting. Like, I think it's, 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 it's you know, it's a hardship to turn around, right? You know, when this, when this canal was first <laughs> no conceived, pun. and yeah, pun very much intended, uh, when the canal was first conceived of in 2010, it was a very different world, right? But now, like, post-pandemic, we're not sure what things are going to look like. We're not sure what the flow of global trade is going to look like in terms of where things are going to get manufactured or they're still going to get made in the same places. We'd really like to hear from you guys on this story. Do you support the construction of the Istanbul Canal? Are you maybe living in Istanbul and, and, and have been following this on the local news? Are you worried about the smell of rotten eggs um, suffusing across the city if the canal gets built? Let us know, podcast at wired.co.uk. Um, we've got one piece of feedback this week, Matt Burgess. Mark writes in about vaccine passports, which was something we were talking to uh, talking about on the uh, episode a few episodes ago, episode 528, which was something three or four ago. Um, And Mark said that they find themselves being in two minds on the issue of COVID passports. Uh, They say on one hand, they would, they want a world that is inclusive, whereby people are able to participate and are not restricted by reasons of wealth or things like that. And the other point which they're conflicted on is that they're complying with the recommendations from their public health authorities and the people that they know and read of who are unwilling to get vaccinations are refraining from uh, doing so because of uh, conspiracy theories or other unfounded reasons Uh, and they say as a result I feel they they should be inconvenienced because of their poor choice which puts my community at an increased risk and uh, should the rest of us be allowed to get back to our social lives um, while uh, these other people are sort of uh, refraining from getting the vaccine or whatever so uh, a bit of a um, uh, marks a bit split down the middle on that point. Yeah, vaccine passports are interesting because they, have, they haven't really materialised in the UK. I know they were floated and talked about quite heavily um, a few months ago, but they haven't actually arrived. And I guess my perspective is that having to have a vaccination to travel is not unheard of, right? If you want to go to certain countries in South America or Asia, you have to have you know several different vaccines. You have to prove that you've had them in order to be allowed access to the country. So I guess from that perspective... COVID one is no different but then I guess when it comes to things like going to the pub or going to the cinema it starts to encroach on many more people's lives and I guess that's where it becomes a bit more challenging that's about all we've got time for this week thanks so much for listening and we'll be back next week goodbye bye